Alright, so before this episode starts, we just want to make a quick announcement saying that the next episode that we publish will not be published the second Saturday in December like we normally would, but instead be published the fourth Saturday in December, so we're going to be skipping that upload date because that fourth Saturday in December, which is the 26th, which is the day after Christmas, mm -hmm. we'll be publishing our season finale, and that one's going to be kind of special. There's a lot of moving, working parts that we have to make sure we put into that, yes. so we're going to give ourselves a bit of time between things just to make sure that everything runs smoothly and that we can give you a really nice season finale. With that being said, let's get into the actual episode. All right, we're recording. We are. This time, we're sitting next to each other. We are sitting next to each other. It's a first. Oh my gosh, only we're like across from each other. We're mm -hmm. actually sitting next to each other this time. Yeah. Wow. Wow. For this episode, we'll be going over unsolved cases that are just weird. There's no definitive signs of murder in yes. these cases, though. It's just unsolved mysteries that we don't know what happened with. Yes. Well, for mine, we somewhat kind of do, but at the same, same time, don't. We have bits and pieces, but we're like, we probably will never know. You're gonna go first. So I normally have, like, two pages of notes per case I cover. And like sometimes I'll include mini rants because that's who I am as a person. I'll write down my rants because while I'm writing my notes about the murderers I hate, I'll get emotions and I'll just start writing. But I have over four pages of notes about this. So I'm covering Amelia Earhart, aka my childhood crush. I should have known I was gay. A general overview of her. She was born July 29th, 1897. She's a Leo. She was the 16th woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. She was the first person to fly over both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. She disappeared in 1937 while trying to go around the globe from the equator, and she was declared dead in 1939. They had no proof of it. They're like, we can't just keep her alive though. <laughs> yeah. So she didn't have the best childhood. She spent her childhood with her maternal grandparents. Amelia's mother is also named Amelia. So in the notes, I called her Amy as it was a common nickname for her. So Amy married an alcoholic and his name was Edwin Earhart. He was constantly trying to like make himself known. He's like, I will be famous, watch me. They had what I can only describe as an on off again that would rival middle schoolers first relationships, like married three times. Like married than divorce three times. Uh-huh. When the family situation got bad, Amy was like, you and your sister just go with your grandparents. And they spent their childhood at their grandparents' house. She showed early interests and in strengths in science and sports. Then high school, Amelia excelled at chemistry. She was just really good at all things STEM. After she graduated, Amelia spent Christmas vacation visiting her sister in Toronto. While in Toronto, she began volunteering as a nurse's aide for the Red Cross. She came to know many pilots 
developed strong relationships. She spent her free time watching military like flyovers, that sort of stuff. In 1919, Amelia enrolled in medical studies. She quit a year later to move to California. This is now weaseling into her learning to fly in her early career. At a Long Beach air show in 1920, Amelia took a plane ride that made her realize, this is what I want to do. It was 10 minutes long. When she landed, she was like, this is, this is my life goal now. No more medical school. This is it. I want to fly. I want to fly. Don't you love it when you just find things like that where like, you know, you're like, and this is what I'm doing. All right, here we go. To like pay for her new career, she was a photographer and a truck driver. She earned enough money to take flying lessons. And she was worried that like other more experienced aviators, especially women, because she didn't give a f- what the men thought, she slept in her leather jacket for three nights to make it look worn in. Oh, that's awesome. That's the I, thing I would do. I know. Isn't it so badass of her? Yeah. In the summer of 1921, Amelia purchased her first plane. It was a biplane painted bright yellow. She nicknamed it the Canary and set out to make a name for herself in aviation, which was successful. Everyone knows Amelia Earhart. Oh, yeah. On May 15th, 1923, Amelia became the 16th woman to be issued a pilot's license. She was the 16th woman to be like, fine, you can fly. You're good enough, we guess. But... It can't stay good. It never stays good. When has it ever stayed good in history? During this time, the Earhart family lived mostly off of inheritance from Amy's mother's estate because her grandparents had passed away. Amy was in charge of the money, but the money had run out. So Emilio realized there was no immediate prospects of her making money off of flying. So she still took plane. She enrolled in Columbia University again, but was forced to abandon her studies due to limited finances. She found employment as a teacher and then a social worker. She got back into aviation in 1927. She also invested small amounts of money she had in an airport in Massachusetts, and she was a sales representative for Kenner Airplanes. Basically, she was an influencer. She was writing stories in the local papers. She was a sales representative trying to sell people stuff. She was like, I'm sponsored by Kenner Airplanes. She was a local celebrity, basically. So, the first woman on a transatlantic flight. Great idea. We want that. Here's the thing. They wanted her as a passenger, not to fly her own plane. They said it was much too dangerous for a woman. Amelia didn't know this yet. So when she got the call in April of 1928 from Captain Hilton H. Raley asking her to fly the Atlantic, she was like, let me do it, let me do it, let me do it. She was excited. She was like, this is my chance. But you got put in the passenger seat. Not happy about this. Nope. She was holding out hope that maybe she'd be able to get behind the wheel. It was a deal beforehand that she wouldn't, but the weather really pushed that she wouldn't. And during this flight, she decided, I'm going to try it alone, whether people wanted to or not. They landed in the United Kingdom, which was the goal. Everything went fine. Woohoo, they did it. But she was not happy. She traveled to New York to be interviewed and meet with project coordinators, that sort of stuff. This is a very important man. Remember George Putnam. Okay. He was the publisher she met. Put a pin in him. Okay. So looking at it today, if I want to go from here to like Italy, it's less than 14 hours. But their plane ride was 20 hours and 40 minutes. Jeez. So she wrote a book called 20 Hours in 40 Minutes. The book was about aviation, her experience, and what it was like to be the only woman there. 
she became super involved with like promotions and she started doing women's fashion which i didn't know <laughs> she started doing women's fashion that was like not feminine quote unquote it was sleek and purposeful that was the goal she gained notoriety and acceptance in the public eye because celebrities were endorsing her which was a huge thing because men were like yeah we like her she was an associate editor at cosmopolitan magazine she used the media outlet for a campaign for commercial air travel. She became a promoter for transcontinental air transport and was the vice president of National Airways, which flew routes like northeast. Like she was doing so much at this time. To the public, she was gracious, shy, brave, like that's who everyone saw her as. Inside, she wanted to distinguish herself, like she wanted to make a name. I want to set myself aside. I want to do something no one's done before. I want to make you all see that women can do it. To kind of push the limits. She was a very intelligent and really good pilot. Never panicked, never lost her nerves. She was not the best, but she was the best at what she got. Cause as technology went like this, she didn't learn the new technology. She just flew based off instinct. She never went to school for it. She's like, I fly from the heart, kind of like I drive. <laughs> if it's kind of like that. I think this is the right turn. <laughs> Pretty much. This is how I get there, right? She did know her limits and but she never stopped working to like make it so she could go past them but the constant promotion and tours made it really hard for her to practice. She recognized the power of her celebrity status. She strove to be an example for young girls and women everywhere of courage, intelligence, self-reliance. She wanted her influence to like topple and get rid of negative stereotypes about women, open doors for them in every field. And I just, I love her. Between 1930 and 1935, Emilia set seven different women's world records. Shortly after returning from her 1928 transatlantic flight, she set off on a successful solo flight across North America. In 1931, Amelia set a world altitude record for men and women. During this time, Amelia became involved with the 99s, an organization of female pilots, uh, and she became the organization's first president. On May 20th, 1932, Amelia became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. Amelia worked on secret plans for a solo flight across the Atlantic. They had made their preparations and announced that on the fifth anniversary of Lindbergh's flight, she was gonna do it. Oh, that is such a middle finger. It is, and she did it better than he did. Hey, you know how you put me in the passenger seat of your flight across the Atlantic? Well, guess what? Guess what I'ma do? I'ma do it on the same day, better than you. I love her. I love her very much. This established her as an international hero. As a result, she won many honors. Gold medals from National Geographic Society, presented by the president, Herbert Hoover. The Distinguished Flying Cross from the US Congress. The Cross of the Knight of Legon from the French government. So she got things from two different governments. Yeah. They're like, kind of like you. <laughs> You're cool. Cool. We're back to Mr. Putman. Putman had published several writings by Lindbergh. And when he saw Amelia's 1928 transatlantic flight as a best-selling story, he was like, come, come here, come here, come here. 
at the time, Putman was married to the Crayola heiress. Like, like art stuff Crayola? Yeah, you heard me right. So they were married. And he was just like, oh. And so she moved in to write her story. Well, the wife was still there. They're like, it, it, was, it was fine. It was strictly professional. But then we find out the wife was cheating on him with the son's tutor. So they get divorced. And then they were like, we started a new relationship, brand new. Mm-hmm. Never done before. Yup. But Amelia and Dorothy, the wife, were actually really, really close friends. Like, they were just gals being pals. Like, very, very close friends. Dorothy never cared about their relationship rumors, which tells me she knew something. Because, like, wouldn't you slightly care about, like, the woman who just moved into your home? I mean, if she was having an affair with the tutor, maybe she was like, this is my way out. This is my way. So, the Putmans, they divorced in 1929, and then Amelia Putman got married. (laughs) Putman was like, please marry me. Amelia said no multiple times until she was like, fine, I'll marry you. He was very excited over this. <laughs> Amelia and Putman got married in his mother's home in Connecticut. So we're approaching her final flight and then we go into the conspiracy here. Amelia's attempt to be the first person to circumnavigate the earth around the equator ultimately resulted in her disappearance. She purchased a new plane, pulled together a top rated crew of three men. Captain Harry Manning, and he would be Amelia's first navigator. Fred Nuon, who had vast experiences in both marine and flight navigation, was to be the second navigator. And Paul Manns, a Hollywood stunt pilot, was chosen to be Amelia's technical advisor. The original plan was to take off from Oakland, California and fly west to Hawaii. From there, the group would fly across the Pacific Ocean to Australia, then would cross the subcontinent of India to Africa, then back to California. That was the plan. Yeah. The plan did not happen. They experienced periodic problems flying across the Pacific and landed in Hawaii for some repairs. After three days, the Electra began to take off, but something went wrong. Mila lost control and looped the plane on the runway. Multiple people like outside the plane said it blew a tire, but everyone in the plane, aka the three men, were like, Amelia lost control when the tire actually popped. They were like, she did it, and the tire's like deflating. By the time her plane was repaired, weather patterns, global wind changes required alterations to the plan. This time, Amelia and her crew would fly east. Though, Captain Harry Manning would not join the team due to previous commitments. Manns was also absent, reportedly due to a contract dispute. If he's not going, I'm not going. Can't make me. After flying from Oakland to Miami, Florida, Amelia and Nuan took off on June 1st from Miami with much fanfare and publicity. Their plane flew towards Central and South America, turning east for Africa. From there, the plane crossed the Indian Ocean, touched down in Lake New Guinea on June 29th. Things going good, things going great, and nothing could go wrong. I didn't think they were wrong. So, several adjustments were made to the plane. They packed away the parachute. They took parachutes off of the plane? Why? Why? Can Things get- were going so well. They said, yeah, you don't need them. You're flying the Pacific Ocean by yourself. Nothing could go wrong. Why? <laughs> you keep the parachute. Literally anything that would have killed her, they did. My God. No parachutes. <laughs> On her own. Yeah, it was her and the other dude. But the other, it doesn't really say what he did. I think he was there for a good time. It wasn't like he was doing the work on the plane. I think it was just like, I mean, like, you didn't kick me off, so I'm coming. Like, I think that's what he was there for. 
So the flyer's plan was to head to Howland Island, which was 250, 100 miles away. They had communications with US Coast Guards because this was not going to be an easy place to land because <laughs> from above, it looks like a cloud. They had to rely on like stars and compasses to figure out where the hell they were ending up. Several early decisions led to this moment. The Electria now carried a thousand gallons of fuel, 50 gallons short of full capacity. So now they had less oil than they needed. Radio equipment with shorter wavelength frequencies were left behind. So like if anyone was close, they wouldn't be able to tell. Their equipment could broadcast radio signals a farther distance, but their radio antenna was damaged. It was pouring when they took off. They had problems with the navigation because it was pouring. They were using inaccurate maps. <laughs> they thought the island was six miles off its actual position. There was so much confusion between Amelia and Ista over which frequency to use and a misunderstanding as to the agreed upon check-in time. On the morning of July 2nd at 7.20 a.m., Amelia reported her position at 7.52 a.m. The Isaka picked up this message from Amelia. We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low, but unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. The ship did reply, but there was no indication that Amelia heard this. The flyer's last communication was at 8.43, though the transmitter was marked as questionable at best. When Isaka realized they had lost contact, they began an immediate search because like, she's famed, we must find her. Despite the effort of 66 aircrafts, nine ships, and an estimated $4 million in rescue authorities by President Teddy Roosevelt, the fate of the two flyers remained a mystery. The official search ended on July 18th, 19th 37, but Putman financed additional search efforts, working off tips of naval experts and even psychics. October 1937, he acknowledged that any chance of Amelia surviving was gone. On January 5th, 1939, Amelia was declared legally dead by the court in Los Angeles. Now, into the theories. Can I have a guess? Yes. Aliens. Yes, aliens are a part here. Can I have another guess? Mm -hmm. Bermuda Triangle. Uh-huh. Which I would love to talk about at some point, because I was obsessed with it as a child. That doesn't surprise anyone. No, it doesn't. Technically, they weren't near the Bermuda Triangle, but people like to loop it in. And aliens, because they were just gone. Must be aliens. Must be aliens, because they were flying through clouds. Poof. All gone. All gone. There's so many theories, but I'm going to stick with the two that have the biggest credibility. Number one, the plane they were flying was ditched or crashed and the two died at sea. Logical conclusion. No aliens here, just death. So many pilots and aviation and navigation experts. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah. they probably died at sea. That's like the set conclusion a lot of people came to. Their plane was not fully fueled. It could not have made it to Howland Island. Even if the conditions were like crystal clear, it wouldn't have happened. Another theory is that Amelia and Nuon might have flown without radio transmission for some time after their last radio signal. Landing at an uninhibited tiny island in the Pacific Ocean, 350 miles southeast of Howland Island. This island is where they would ultimately die. This theory is based on several on-site investigations. So, is that the thing where they found end up finding bones that they thought belonged to a man, but after further investigation, learned it was a woman, and so that's why? Is that something else? Yes, in my personal, very unprofessional opinion, this is the, what I believe. Because 
because yeah. what they found on site included bits of clothing, an aluminum panel, a piece of flexiglass, the exact same width and curvature of the electrical window. And in May 2012, investigators found a jar of freckle cream in the proximity of their other findings that probably belonged to Amelia. In October 2014, it was reported that researchers at Tyga found a 19-inch by 23-inch scrap of metal that the group identify as a fragment from Amelia's plane. In 1940, British officials reported finding human bones beneath a rent tree. The original analysis determined the bones to be possibly from a short, stocky European male. But in 2018, anthropologist Richard Jantz announced the results of a study which he re-examined the original bones discovered in 1940. After comparing bone measurements and studying photos of Amelia and her clothing measurements, Jantz concluded that they were likely a match. In July 2017, a team of four forensic bone-sniffing dogs, Tiger and the National Geographic Society, claimed to find the spot where Earhart may have died. The Tiger team said all four dogs alerted investigators of human remains. Dogs! Dogs! We get the good boys! Amelia's life and career have been celebrated for several decades. We have Amelia Earhart Day, which is held on her birthday, July 24th. The last thing I want to say is Amelia, she wanted to set a good example for women and be like, you can literally do anything and you can most of the time do it better than your male co-workers. She wanted to show men just how confident women can be. I think she did a very good job at that. Oh yeah. And that is the end of my hour and a half long story. So, mine is not as long, mainly just because there's not as much information about mine, and because, well, it's Reddit. <laughs> Reddit's great for spooky content. It is. So, my unsolved mystery is the Happy Valley Dream Survey. Now, how I find some of the cases that I find is through a whole bunch of rabbit holes, mainly starting at the Red Web, which is a Rooster Teeth podcast that I also love, and that's how I found this one. So, let's, let's get into it then. Yes. So we start off on April 30th of 2015 in Portland, Oregon. People started finding flyers posted around town for the Willamette Valley Dream Survey. And those are still currently up right now. And we're gonna post on our social media the posters that show up because it's very visual because it looks even creepier than it sounds. What the sign is, is just a plain white sign that says, have you been having strange dreams? The Willamette Valley Dream Survey is investigating a recent spike in bizarre, unexplainable dreams. If you have been experiencing any unusual dream activity, you can help by reporting a summary. Please call 971-258-1465 with a description of your dream. And actually, that phone number is still active today. I have not called it because I'm not dealing with that. Oh yeah, we don't need that energy. From people who have called the number, what they get is a recorded message of a real woman, I specify real woman because we'll get to that later, saying, thank you for calling the Willamette Valley Dream Survey. Please leave a detailed account of your dream after the tone. Transcripts or audio from your report may be duplicated in other media. And then it goes to voicemail, you would say your dream, and there's kind of some like feedback, and people say, oh, maybe that's because they're recording it, which would, you know, make sense to voicemail. So immediately, these signs are giving people in Portland a really weird feeling. Really, oh, yeah. Like, you know, very off-putting. Now, this kind of went cold. People on Reddit found this and were like, huh, that's weird, but nothing really came of it. Until 2019 and futile phones. I love oh. saying the word futile. Futile phones are free public telephones that are in different states. You probably 
probably may not even notice that they're there, but they're all around Portland, Oregon. Now, in 2019, a man named Rory Elliott went on an adventure to locate all the futile phones in Portland, Oregon. Can I love him? Yes. I'm like, please don't tell me he turns out to be a serial killer no, because no, no. I love this adventure. There's no murder that we know of in this. Okay. In the thing that he ended up publishing, he said, quote, by dialing three for the directory, you're given the option to call the mayor, the Druid of Sisyphus Gardens, the Apology Line, Wilmot Valley Dream Survey, and more. So Wilmot Valley Dream Survey is one of the things on the directory. It's not the phone number, it's actually Wilmot, it says Wilmot Valley Dream Survey. That's super, super weird right? April of 2020. That's this year. That's this year. Flyers started being posted in potentially several states, but we can't confirm it because it was one of those things where maybe someone posted it from this state and everyone's like, oh, that seems cool. I'll post it saying it's from this yeah. state, you know? But these posters were advertising the Happy Valley Dream Survey, which is a nickname for Utah County. Where's Utah County? It's in Utah. Okay, that makes sense. No more questions. Now these flyers had a very similar message to the Willamette Valley survey from 2015. But the Happy Valley Dream Survey one says, have you been having strange dreams? The Happy Valley Dream Survey is investigating a recent spike in bizarre, unexplained dreams. If you've been experiencing any unusual dream activity, you can help by reporting a summary. Please contact either Happy Valley Dream Survey at mail.com or 725-333-9067 and leave a description of your dream. So basically same exact message, now an email. Like exact same thing, just yeah. here's the email this time. Now when you call a number, you get a woman's voice, but this one's a bit more robotic sounding, like a text-to-speech bot. Okay, like Siri. Think less Siri and think more British GPS woman. Okay, like what I have my way set to. Exactly. This woman said, please leave a description of your dream after the tone. After you leave a voicemail and tell them your dream, you receive an automatic text immediately after saying, thank you for participating in the Happy Valley Dream Survey. Now, this is where things started getting a type of more weird. Some report receiving calls that just randomly hang up from the same number as the Happy Valley Dream Survey. Of course, this got the attention of Reddit. Two people who were really investigating this were two accounts named Alien Did 911. Valid. And one Reddit. They were both heavily active on Reddit, trying to figure out what this was. One Reddit said that they felt uneasy and worried about what they had gotten themselves into. And in May of this year, both users vanished from Reddit. Not only their posts and initial information, but also their YouTube videos of their calls to Happy Valley Dream Survey had been completely erased from the internet. So this brought a lot of other people into trying to figure out all this stuff. Here's what they were able to figure out. People were able to backtrack the number and found out that it was associated with a Las Vegas location. However, the carrier of the number is something called a VOIP, which is voice over IP. Basically, instead of it being a carrier like Sprint or T-Mobile, it's a bandwidth carrier like Google Voice. So you can't really backtrack things through there. I know that's like the point, but I hate when people are smart. So some people were able to get responses back from Happy Valley Dream Survey through the texts. They were able to determine the time zone that Happy Valley Dream Survey claimed to be from because one person able to get what time it was from the Happy Valley Dream Survey. So using when they got that text, they will determine that whoever was on the other end of Happy Valley Dream Survey was somewhere in the UTC, which is universal time, plus 
eight, which means that they are in Beijing, Singapore, or Taiwan, most likely. However, very easy to fake that. Oh, you yeah. could just say, hey, it's almost 5 p.m. here, and everyone would be like, oh, wow, they're here, and it's like, ah, ha, 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 I got you. The issue with them being in, you know, Beijing, Singapore, or Taiwan would be, okay, how are they putting up posters in the U.S.? After a whole bunch of like messaging bag and all this, they were able to get some response from Happy Valley Dream Survey. Some people got a text back saying this. Sorry, my responses are limited. You must ask the right questions. Now, this sounds super, super ominous. It does. It's actually a quote from iRobot. <laughs> Which I think either makes it like not creepy at all or like even way more creepier yeah. that they're kind of trying to base this off of iRobot. Or it could just be, oh, they're trying to like, you know, scare me. One Reddit user, Caitlin2468, got this response from Happy Valley Dream Survey and messaged back a whole bunch of questions. And apparently they got one right. Happy Valley Dream Survey's response was, that is the right question. And then another text saying, nine, go hey, five, jit. I'm gonna spell that out just so that if you are a bit confused, so it's the Number nine, G-O-E-H-E, five, J-I-T. People in red were able to translate this. So nine, go ahead, translates to Creole ASEAN as septem in French. And that translates to September in English. Basically, this says September five. Do you recognize that number? I do. What do you recognize that number from? Maybe a famous group on Reddit from this year. There's I just realized I can't see my face right now, but I'm yeah. like... <gasps> so earlier this year, for those of you who are not aware, on Reddit, there was a group that believed an apocalypse event will occur on September 5th, 2020. And the group also believed that dreams will help avert a disaster or at least help you find a safe place during the end of the world. The September 5 idea began around late 2019 on Reddit. But prior to that, a video appeared on YouTube on November 9th, 2016. Now all this video is, is it's a yellow screen that says in rainbow colored letters, September 5, 2020 matter. And a song, Scars Won't Matter by the artist, The Wilburns. So back to Reddit. The original poster on Reddit who said that the world was going to end on September 5th, 2020, they warn that the day will be exactly 24 hours instead of its usual 23 hours and 56 minutes. They said that electric devices won't work, that people will disappear. He claims to have seen a man in blue flames in his dreams who told him about all of this. He also talks in codes and tells tales about a mysterious organization. They said that on the 5th of September, 2020, the Earth will move closer to the sun, electrical systems will shut down, and good luck will decrease. Now, September 5th came and went, and we're still here. And everyone on the Reddit page is now like, it. the Reddit page is actually very funny. If you guys want to look up r slash September 5 on Reddit, there's all these jokes about like how September 5th was the worst day, I lost a penny down the drain. And so everyone believes that the September 5th thing was just a joke slash ARG, which is, for those of you who are not aware of what an ARG is, it's an alternate reality game. Basically, it's a different way to tell a story. Most of the time you have stories told in books or in movies, and ARG is a different way of telling a story, which is having the people who are trying to figure out the puzzles be the main character. You are the main character in this, and it happens a lot on the internet, because it's a lot easier to do these things on the internet. Think similar to like a D&D role-playing game, only on a much grander, more real-life scale. So we have that end, and it's kind of anticlimactic since, you know, we've passed September 5th. But that raises the question, was Happy Valley Dream Survey connected with September 5th? Here are a couple theories as to what the Happy Valley Dream Survey was. 
first one is obviously that it was somehow connected to September 5. Whether it be a thing that the person who made the ARG did to try to gain more traction for it, whether it be something that a fan of the ARG did to try to gain traction for it. However, the issue with this is that only a couple people got that response of September 5. So maybe that also raises the question of maybe this is something fun that someone decided to do since this was April, beginning of quarantine, people were bored. Yeah, people are tired. They're like, I want to go out and do something fun. So they did that. Then they learned about this, you know, September 5 thing. We're like, oh, let's add this into that. Just keeping adding, you know? That is a very easy to manage, easy to consume thing of that's what this was. However, there are a couple other things that this was. A thing that people thought September 5 was originally was a cult. Everyone's like, this is a cult. This is a new online internet cult. And now, it's, like, cult. And now it's more of like an ARG fun, laughable thing, right? But first, people are like, this is a cult. Yeah. So a thought for what Happy Valley Dream Survey is, is maybe it's a cult, just not the September 5 one. I can see it. Another theory that people have is a very easy theory to get from just seeing the flyers, which is it's a dream survey. They're basically seeing, okay, during quarantine, people are having weird dreams. I've been having weird dreams. Same. You've been having weird, like, really vivid, real dreams. Yeah. They're actually like, hey, we want to see what the general public is thinking of all this. Send us your dreams. We'll see. We'll do a science research study. Similar to this man. For those of you who are not aware of the this man situation, in 2006, a woman ends up drawing a picture of a man that's been appearing in her dreams, giving her advice, and gives it to her psychiatrist. Another patient of the same psychiatric ends up seeing the drawing and is like, I've seen that man too. And then another one says, I've seen this man too. This psychiatric ends up sending out this drawing to a whole bunch of their friends, and these people show the drawing to their patients. And to this day, at least 2,000 people have claimed to see this man in their dreams with no connection to each other. So maybe this is another type of survey like that to see if there's any common dreams that people have and to try to figure out why so many people have these dreams. And then we get the final theory that I'm gonna bring up, which is mentioned on that Red Web podcast that I mentioned mm -hmm. before. One of the guys who hosts it, thinking maybe this is a scam of some kind. Data mining, trying to get traction for a business, just a really big thing like that. So he ended up calling them, telling them his dream, and then messaging them over and over again saying, hey, I'm worried about my dream, trying to be very, trying to get a response out of worry instead of out of curiosity. He ended up did getting a response. He ended up getting a text back that said, please call following numbers for further instruction and gave him two phone numbers. He looked up both the numbers without calling them and said that they were connected to a company called DVO Enterprises, which is a company that created a recipe organizer app. So this could just be a very big business ploy. I wouldn't put it past them. Or it could be a front to some bigger thing, you know? They call and they're like, this is DVO Enterprises, how may I help you? So I've been having some weird dreams. Come with me. <laughs> Meet me at blah, 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 coordinates. Yeah. You know? You have to order something very specific on the menu to get back into the, like, secret area. It's like exactly. that. <laughs> yeah. Even though we've kind of figured out the September 5 mystery, which we thought was connected to this, we still don't know, at least from what I've read, we still don't know what Happy Valley Dream Survey or what Willamette Valley Dream Survey were, what they were trying to do, who made them. So that's still a very big mystery. And that's all of my things that I have to talk about. everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. We will post our next episode on the 26th of December, and that'll yep. be our season finale. So get ready for that. Alrighty then. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.